Hi, everyone. It's February 28th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Karashi. In today's show, we feature a discussion with Ian Davison. Ian is currently a fellow in the lab of HHMI investigator Michael Ehlers at Duke University Medical Center. Prior to this, he worked with Larry Katz, also at Duke. Ian's main focus is sensory coding in the primary output cells of a mouse olfactory bulb. We sat down with Ian to talk about some of the technical and theoretical aspects of his work and the current state of affairs in olfactory processing. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Around the table, we've got Michael Ferris. Hi. Charlie Wilson. Hello. Fidel Santa Maria. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And me, I'm Salma Karashi. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. So, Ian, um, advanced microscopy and molecular genetic tools are forming the basis of advanced anatomical techniques that are allowing us to ask questions about circuit formation and brain connectivity that we couldn't really address before, especially um, in live tissues. Could you talk about some of the ramifications of these new techniques in, in your field and what what you see maybe as the next wave of technology necessary to answer some of the really big questions about the organization of the olfactory system? Um, sure. I mean, I think maybe potentially the most exciting thing is uh, labeling genetically targeted populations of cells. And I think, you know, with respect to olfactory system, Linda Box Lab has probably you know, done the most to carry that forward. So they've labeled sort of a single set of olfactory receptor types, um, which project to a single location in the olfactory bulb. And then they can sort of trace this information as it goes to the cortex. So by, you know, restricting genetically the set of cells that they label, they can really see what this information is carried by this receptor type of how it fans out and how it spreads to different parts of the brain. So, so I think... It's easy to... Sorry, but it's easy to see how the... Having that receptor labeled labels the olfactory nerve fibers. What isn't obvious is how it is that that uh, gives you the next uh, set of fibers to the cortex. Right, and thank you for um, pointing that out. So, what I the important thing that I didn't say is that they uh, express wheat germ and gluten in, in these cells. So, this is a synapse crossing marker which is then passed, you know, to the set of cells which are synaptically connected to these neurons, to the presynaptic receptors. Um, so by having something that crosses this set of synapses, then you can see where this information goes in the next layer of the circuit. And this is where, you know, a lot of these techniques, especially sort of Ed Calloway's viral approaches, I think are really making inroads where you can have something that keeps jumping synapses or goes, you know, a specified number of synapses. Um, postsynaptic to the neurons you put it in and then stops. So I think this combination of having um, a probe that's targeted to a specific set of cells and then you know crosses synapses is a really powerful way of seeing you know, who's talking to who inside the brain. And you know I think it's a lot of this stuff is still early on in development, but I think in the long term it should prove to be pretty revealing. It seems to me that the um the, the really amazing thing about this kind of anatomy is the ability to combine it with functional stuff so that it always ends up being functional anatomy. It's obvious, the one you just mentioned where you're using a functional marker for a group of cells that have a similar function. But in the another example that, that you, uh, of work that you're doing, you end up with having a functionally defined cells, anatomical group of cells that all share a function, and then you've 
you have uh, you're using an animal that has photorhodopsin in specifically those cells that you can so that you can specifically illuminate and stimulate those cells, and so it's, it's sort of uh, anatomy physiology anatomy sort of uh, down the line where you're. And that's the advantage of doing it on live cells as well, doing all the anatomy in live cells. So do you think uh, do you think this generalizes to the rest of the brain? Are people who work on basal ganglia going to get to benefit from this kind of approach soon? Or, uh, uh, I soon. Soon? Real soon? <laughs> Real soon? I don't know. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people interested in applying this technology, and right now probably the limitation is having... Uh, you know, gene or, you know, something that's expressed specifically in your cell population. So you have a way of, you know, targeting your channel rhodopsin or whatever anatomical marker you want to put in there to those cells. So it's sort of, this is maybe one of the big limiting factors right now is having something, some genetic marker for all these different cell populations so you can get the stuff in there in the first place. But as since you mentioned the channel adoption, I mean channel this is adoption. I think I said it wrong. But that's yeah. one of the powerful things about that approach too is you know it's you know, fused to a fluorescent protein, so you can see where things are going anatomically. But um, you can also functionally activate this set of cells, and then if you measure from the downstream targets, then then you can see not just this is connected, but this is connected. You know this strong to this part, this strong to this part. Um, you can do it repetitively, see what the more dynamic properties of the synapses are. So you can really couple these anatomical measurements to something that tells you about the realistic, more dynamic properties of, of the connections. Um, can, can you remind me, um, the channel rhodopsin is um, based, uh, the expression of channel rhodopsin is through these tau promoters, which they just label random subpopulations. So... Uh, that's kind of uh, Goping's uh, um, tradition, right? I mean, that's what his lab does in general. So it would be a matter of having a mega colony, right? <laughs> of time, in, in some time it will get, just by chance, basal ganglia labeled, right? Um, maybe. Is that how it was done for this cells mm-hmm. that, you're, that you're using? So that the fact that you have just a particular set of glomeruli what isn't it isn't because it's built around some identified promoter but because of just a by chance event yeah so goping's approach is to use this thigh one promoter which sort of gets turned on randomly in different sets of cells and i think the rules for that are really whether it's random or just a set of rules we don't know mm-hmm. but so yeah so this inserts the way I understand this um, is that it inserts into the genome and it's really um, particularly subject to positional effects. So depending on where it winds up in this mouse line in the genome then sort of comes on in these cells and not those cells. So I think the next wave of um, being able to really probe specific cell types is to be able to have it under a specific promoter that's specific to your cell type. So the animals that go ping is made, so it's pretty widespread expression, you know, all through the cortex and brain stem and sort of all through the olfactory bulb. So it's actually fortunately already or unfortunately in the basal ganglion. Mm-hmm. One be, just doesn't know. I would be billing, willing to bet that it's in there. So if you can figure out how to get light in there, then the you problem can start. Is, I mean, the, the advantage of it is that he can identify anatomically, uh, anatomically yeah. and he can say, oh, well, this is an interesting one. I've got like six glomeruli stand here, they're probably all closely related to each other, seems right. like a good bet, oh, yeah. and so therefore I kind of know what I have. Whereas if I looked in 
the uh, section and I saw, well, there's, you know, 1% of cells is stand, then I don't know exactly what I've got yet. I might later find out that that is some specific cell type that, and I, that I already know about, and then I would be off and running. But the cooler thing would be to be able to target a particular kind of cell and load so you can do that. Well, there are examples well. of this surmise in which, as far as I remember, you can, they could target a subpopulation with, within a network. So, for example, in the cerebellum, uh, they've been able, they, they have a line, Gopin's lab has a line in which um, the expression is in the granule cells, but not in the Purkinje cell. And I think in the cortex, they have it in all pyramidal cells, except layer five. So I think that's what they use, like uh, George's paper, I think the PNAS paper, in which they just went with laser light and mapped the functional input to this pyramidal cell that was not labeled. But all the other, it, was, it didn't express channel relapsing, but all the others did. So they were able to, to map the functional uh, input to a pyramidal cell. So. The problem is that is I mean the advantage is that is uh, you can you can target these populations. The disadvantage is that you have to wait until chance is on your side uh, to to target your particular population. Yeah, that's not what I call targeting. I mean, well, that's what I call being lucky. Yeah. Okay, but luck is on your side. <laughs> Sounds like a song. <laughs> well, there is a lot of new developmental work mm -hmm. where there are genes that are known to be expressed specifically in certain cell types where you can, there's no reason why you couldn't do targeting there. There are right. known promoters that are expressed right. in certain cell types. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe I could take this opportunity too on the topic of sort of targeting cell types to sort of sell you on my collaborator, Ben Horankil's um, system for doing this. So he's made this, uh, not for the channel reduction animals currently, but I think you guys may have heard about this uh, a few months ago, but he's made these animals uh, expressing capsaicin mm -hmm. receptors. So it's a, the same sort of idea where you take an exogenous receptor which responds to a ligand which isn't normally there, um, at least in the central nervous system. And so you dump on this ligand and you can activate the cells and make them fire the action potentials, etc. So the thing that he's done that's really nice is he made, he's made this animal where there's a floxed uh, stop sequence before the gene. So normally, you know, this is truncated and isn't expressed. But then if you cross these animals with a driver line expressing uh, Cre recombinase in the cells that you're interested in, then it'll actually chop out the stop sequence and then this gene is expressed. So, I mean, he's got this really beautiful system where you can just, you know, there's a whole sort of catalog of different uh, Cre driver lines available now. So you can, if you find your right Cre driver line, then you cross it to this animal. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, so you can imagine doing this for sort of a whole array of different receptors like this. Is there cage capsaicin? There is, as a matter of fact, some molecular probes will make this and oh, okay. try the same approach. So we've talked about mm -hmm. maybe trying to do the same kind of approach in the ball, but many other things on the burner and haven't That's great. Oh, that's fantastic. It's so nice to hear a physiologist speak with such confidence about genetic tools. You don't often <laughs> see that. Um, uh, if you heard confidence, I'm glad I seemed to have fooled you. <laughs> so um, I actually wanted to get to some of, some of your work. Could you step us through the olfactory system 
sort of from, from the sensory epithelium to the olfactory bulb to the piriform cortex and, and outline briefly what we know about signal processing at each level briefly. I know that's, that's huge, um, especially as it relates to your work. So if we start, I guess, from the same perspective as I was talking about earlier, from the bottom up, if we look at the sensory receptors in the epithelium, then each one of these receptors expresses a single kind of uh, olfactory receptor protein or odor receptor protein. Um, so this protein uh, has binding specificity for a certain subset of chemical um, odorant molecules. So this odorant receptor protein that is expressed by the sensory neuron itself sort of defines what set of chemicals this neuron is going to be responsive to. Um, so maybe the main point of this, this initial step in the process is that, at least in the rodents, there's over a thousand of these receptor types. So there's you know many different sensory channels in which you know, this immense you know olfactory space can be broken up into. Uh, so that's so there's maybe. no redundancy at that level. You don't because I think it, it is true that you find multiple odorants activating single receptors and single odorants activating multiple receptors and and what role does antagonism play there? Is there any basis for odorant ligands competing for for binding sites and maybe that results in kind of a non-additive as opposed to an additive effect of odorants on the response to mixtures later on down the line? Yeah, I think there's maybe two main bodies of evidence looking at responses of receptors, and the first would be looking at dissociated neurons or direct recordings from, like electrical recordings from the neurons in the sensory epithelium. I would say that what people tended to find there is that they're very broadly tuned, so there's a fairly broad range of chemicals which will activate any given receptor, and these are also overlapping so that, you know, the set of molecules that's active at one receptor may also be active at another receptor. So the, res so, so the sensory neurons seem to break down sensory space into these sort of larger patches which can overlap with each other. Um, but I would say that the evidence from sort of functional imaging, if you look at intrinsic signals of, you know, glomerular activation in the bulb or you know, even more directly calcium signals or synaptofluorin-based signals, then there's really a small set of glomeruli that get activated for any individual odorant. And these, you know, at least my interpretation of the data that's out there is that these are much more non-overlapping. So to my mind, there's a little bit of a disconnect between sort of the direct measurements from receptors themselves and what you see when you're looking in the intact olfactory bulb. Well, that's puzzling because... Um, because it seems like maybe something special is happening in the glomeruli to sharpen the responses of the cells. But at the level of the receptors, so if I were to just pick one receptor molecule and I place it into a heterologous expression system and then I just start giving it chemicals and looking at what it's doing, I, I'm, I'm sure this is known, I just don't know it, but if, if it was a GABA receptor, and I, which is sort of like analogous to this, I would find that there's not just the GABA binding site, that there's a benzodiazepine binding site and so on, and that these would interact with each other in interesting ways to make combinations. And so is it possible, or is it known, whether the olfactory receptor molecules are like that, that there are allosteric interactions among odorants, that sometimes there's synergies and sometimes there's uh, competitiveness, and is that stuff uh, worked out at this point? 
So I'd say there's maybe two groups. Stuart Firestein's group and uh, Tuhara's group in Japan have found you know a couple instances where there's you know a chemically very similar molecule to sort of an active ligand for a sensory neuron will actually inhibit that same sensory neuron. So there are definitely cases where sort of these nonlinear interactions happen, and you know the ones that I'm aware of at least tend to be more along suppressive lines. And I think they found that. It's non-competitive interactions, at least some of these cases. Um, so I don't know if this is really mechanistically understood. So, um, so, so there's possible there's a possibility of more than one binding site on these molecules, and so the molecule may be designed to bind more than one class of chemical uh, ligand. Uh, quite possibly, and then I guess that's maybe a, one of the big questions is whether it's designed to do that, or this is sort of an accidental property of the receptor itself. So, I mean, oh, maybe yeah, the yeah, main sure. question is, Whether is the system so. really sort of doing meaningful processing that level, or mm-hmm. is it ah, yes. um, sort of a chance interaction? I mean, the, the number of instances of this that I know of are relatively small. Um, so, I mean, obviously, it's going to be incorporated in the coding scheme in some way, and I think it's still unclear sort of to what extent this makes a meaningful contribution, sort of these interactions at the receptor level. Because I think besides these relatively few instances, things tend to be additive um, to compounds that are given the receptor. But I guess from uh, um, what I gather from from um, what you've told us is that uh, you can analyze the um, olfactory system from like a feed-forward network. Right? You have your sensory epithelium, then you have your glomeruli, and then you have your piriform cortex, and then the rest of the brain. But if I remember correctly from my uh, anatomy class, right, I mean, there, there are a lot of centrifugal fibers, and I think most of the fibers in the lateral olfactory tract are centrifugal, or it's at least 40%, right? I don't know if I personally want to try and put a number on it. Um, uh-huh. I don't remember okay, well, I did, head, but, but there's a very... Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, you can blame me, but, uh, but there's a big number of whatever fibers, is, right? Yeah, whatever, it's a lot. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, a mountain of fibers coming back from cortex and also, you know, neuromodulatory fibers from lots of different regions. And, you know, I think there's still really an open question what those might be doing. Um, so presumably, you know, a pattern maybe gets, if we look at it from the feed-forward perspective, then something comes out of the olfactory bulb, maybe the cortical areas do some kind of object recognition, mm-hmm. and then... Maybe you've got this more of a loop sort of situation. Maybe to sharpen the signal, or I mean, to sharpen the the, the response of the of each cell, right? Yeah. So, but there's even the opportunity for iterative solution, right? Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I wonder if what we are, ma- I mean, this is this goes to um, um, discussion on on receptive fields, right? Like uh, you can map a receptive field in visual cortex with a dot in space, but it gets more difficult when you have uh, a real scene. And um, because you have a lot of feedback as well, like even in V1, V1 is, um, uh, can be regulated even by attention. And uh, the same could be, be happening in the glomerulus, right? I mean, you're, we are mapping in the, in the olfactory bulb, we are, or you are mapping, <laughs> um, how the, the system responds to uh, pure uh, stimulus, right, or pure tone, or, uh, um, 
And then uh, how can we determine, how can we know what is going to be the response of the, of the bulb to a more natural scene of odors? Right. This is Fidel, the reductionist. I mean, and now he's giving us the emergent property. I'm becoming a and, little holistic myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think I did try to approach that situation at mm-hmm. least sort of mm-hmm. in a crude sort of way by testing, you know, just not just responses to single monomolecular odors, but also um, looking at these in mixed years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just to to restate what I was talking about earlier, um, my general finding was that in most situations there wasn't really a dramatic reconfiguration of the response of these cells based on other components in the mixture. So there was definitely cases where this happened and there was big effects on the response of the cell, but that was sort of a relatively small fraction of the cells they looked at. So um, when Fidel earlier mentioned and alluded to the visual system and to receptive fields, one thing that this reminded me of was how different uh, the sensory space for olfaction is from at least three of the other four senses. And, uh, and in those cases, especially for the somatosensory system or for the visual system, there are two major dimensions that are important. You know, and it's, that's basically uh, areas on the, on the receptor surface and that are very naturally mapped onto uh, the cortex. And there is there are local interactions between different parts of, say, visual cortex that are involved in sensory processing, like sharpening or shaping uh, receptive fields. Now, in olfaction, it doesn't, it's hard to see a, a two- or three-dimensional stimulus space in there, and yet in the actual neural hardware, there are these local interactions uh, where I assume that the inhibitory neurons that uh, allow for some interaction between glomeruli don't operate over arbitrary distances they are only local glomeruli. So my question is, do you, is there anything you know about the olfactory space where uh, the brain can get by with this physical constraint? You know, it can't link things up in more than two or three dimensions and still have um, useful processing. Or do you, what, how do you think the brain deals with this limitation? Oh, so that, that's a pretty big question. I mean, looking specifically in the olfactory bulb, I mean, I think your point's really well taken that you've got this multi-dimensional space that's being collapsed down to essentially two dimensions in the olfactory bulb. So you sort of have necessarily some degree of fracturedness maybe in the spatial mapping of whatever these dimensions are. Um, As far as these different elements of the circuit being able to interact with each other, though, so mitral cells have these lateral dendrites that they can send out really extensively um, in obviously lateral directions in the olfactory bulb. So these can be you know up to a millimeter long. So they can really cover a substantial fraction of you know the lateral dimensions of the olfactory bulb. So there's at least physically there's, there's the substrate there for glomeruli that are very spatially separated from each other to talk to each other. Um, but I think this is one of the big questions that's in the air now is this idea of contrast enhancement and lateral inhibition has been thrown around a lot and there's some evidence that this takes place but I think we have really very little knowledge about sort of what spatial scales this might operate over. What neighborliness means, right? So normally these kinds of spatial interactions happen between uh, stimuli that are close to each other and might be confused with each other but 
neighborliness in this um, thousand-dimensional space, as we just don't have any notion of, of what it means. Yet we, perceptually, we think this smells a little bit like that. And so we can talk about neighborliness in the perceptual space, but it just doesn't map onto the physiological space at this point. Is, is that right? Or, or is there a way of uh, saying, well, these glomeruli are near each other, and so these two things are kind of similar smells? Uh, so relating to spatial position and perceptual sim similarity, I don't really know of any data like really addressing that, but as far as like lower-level properties goes, you know, there's some evidence that receptors that are tuned to similar odorants or chemical features are, can be located pretty close to each other, so at least as far as having the potential for these local lateral interactions to take place, um, then you know maybe there is this sort of topography where this sort of um, lateral inhibition mechanism can be more easily implemented. So if you imagine something where so the strength of lateral inhibition falls off spatially, then it would make sense to have these glomeruli, which respond to sim similar features, clustered together. Um, you know, and I think there is, you know, basic evidence that this happens in some cases, but yeah, I mean, this is still back to the problem of how does the dimensional of the stimulus space map onto the olfactory bulb? Because you could, you could imagine a situation where there wasn't any neighborliness at all, and so every smell is a direction in this big space, and that they don't lie on any uh, surface, any simple surface. And so in that case, I guess, every this little set of glomeruli that represent a receptor ought to inhibit all other glomeruli equally. And so in that case, you might want to have the glomeruli far enough apart so that their lateral inhibitory interactions, uh, so the sun never set on their lateral inhibitory interactions. And every time an odor turns on, it would inhibit the response to everything else uh, equally without prejudice instead of inhibiting them according to how similar or different they are. Well, this is a really interesting model that actually Nathan Urban has come out with uh, recently. If I remember this right, I'll try and get the details um, in order. But his idea is really that there is this sort of all-to-all -all connectivity um, sort of between microcells and granule cells because of you know this, the length of the dendrites of these neurons. So. His idea is really that the strength of the inhibitory interaction between any two cells, or presumably two glomeruli, depends you know, not on their spatial location, but just on the activity levels of these two cells. So you've got all these cells that are you know, in randomly distributed locations, but aren't active, really aren't interacting with each other. But then you have two neurons, you know, could be very far apart, could be very close together, but just the fact that they're both active at the same time means that they will uh, have an effect on each other. So then, you know, it's a sort of completely different physical way of implementing this, you know, same conceptual idea, but now you don't have this constraint of making, you know, neighbors in sensory space be next to each other in physical space. So one way in which you might be able to not exactly test, but sort of assess the degree to which neighborliness in the olfactory bowl matters would be just to ask, um, do two glomeruli that receive inputs from particular receptors across individual individuals, do they always end up in the same relative location? Like if neighborliness mattered in some sense and you would predict that among individual different individual mice, uh, the glomerulus for receptor A and the one for receptor B, if they're close together in the first mouse, then they should be close together in all mice. So has anyone looked at that? Um, 
the distribution of those glomeruli relative to each other? Yes, yeah, so this is a really interesting thing about the projections of the sensory axons is they're really incredibly stereotyped from animal to animal. You know, there's obviously some variability, especially since there's a thousand of these things, but they really seem to go to the same place in the same relative locations. So Marcus Meister has some data that shows that sort of each glomerulus targets, you know, within plus or minus two glomerular diameters in either direction. So it's really, considering the number that there are there, it's really incredibly precise. So I think maybe a better way to look at it, I mean, these animals that we look at are, you know, sort of incredibly inbred um, mice, which are essentially genetically identical to each other. So maybe a more telling way of looking at it would be to look at different strains of mice, say, and see if these same patterns are preserved. Or, I mean, the, testing this idea explicitly, to me, would be really interesting as well. So if you can you know, record a neuron and find an odorant that activates it, and then you can sort of artificially, synthetically, start turning on the cells that are nearby or far away. You know, then you can start asking, are the ones that are nearby have a stronger effect than the ones that are far away? Or just, you know, how much interaction is there in the first place if you activate someplace that's you know, spatially separate from the neuron that you're recording? responding to sensory stimulus. The, uh, often the lateral interactions lead to a discussion of the secondary dendrites of mitral cells, uh, which go a long way, as you pointed out. But there are also paraglomerular cells that go between glomeruli, and they go over a shorter distance, don't they? They are not a millimeter long. Uh, they are not a millimeter long, but there is actually another class of uh, neurons uh, to paradoxically called short axon cells, which don't have short axons. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Mike Shipley's group has studied these, and they found that activating a sort of local region of the tissue can activate these neurons, which then sort of disynaptically turn on the periglomerular neurons, which then uh, can inhibit the mitral cells. So there does exist this sort of more extended pathway by which, you know, the lateral, not just the you know, granule cells, but also periglomerular cells can also potentially mediate um, lateral inhibition. Which can, which can be long-range. I was thinking of that as short-range, but it isn't necessarily short-range inhibition. Um, no, so I mean the argument that these guys have made is that it's potentially acts over you know, quite extended differences. Um, as far as glomerular layer interactions go, so Matt Kobiak has some interesting data where he looks at sort of combining odorants um, into binary mixtures. So they can come up with uh, stimuli that activate glomeruli that are you know, spatially close together in the bulb. You present them individually, so you see this glomerulus light up this case, this one in that case, then put them together. And these glomeruli that are you know, spatially close together, at least when you look at the presynaptic inputs, don't seem to interact with each other. Um, so this was a sort of long-standing model that presynaptic inhibition was also playing a big role in sort of lateral interactions in the bulb. And these guys have actually sort of turned the presynaptic idea, at least, on its head, I think. So when, when one talks about olfactory bulb, one of the first things that comes to mind, for me at least, is that it's one of the few places in the brain that you actually see neurogenesis. What is the significance of that in your mind? Is it sort of a plasticity learning issue, or how do you fit it into your worldview? So maybe I should qualify things first by saying I might not be the you know, best person to really... Everybody's pronounced on that, but mm. that's um, what we're interested in hearing your. That's why I had to bring it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think there is evidence there that 
uh, as with hippocampus as well, that if you disrupt neurogenesis, then you can disrupt aspects of learning. And the cells seem to be preferentially incorporated into regions of the bone where there is higher activity. So there's at least, and there's also sort of activity-dependent, um, critical or sensitive period for survival of these cells. So there, it definitely seems to be, you know, at the very least, activity-dependent, which would imply that it's you know got some sort of role in... Um, in memory in some sense, but I think really the role of the granule cell in the olfactory circuit is still rather poorly defined anyhow, so sort of layering the top of the problem of neur uh, newborn neurons on top of what are the granule cells doing in the first place mm -hmm. is complicated. Earlier, someone was, uh, was asking me something that I don't know the answer, but when you were talking about uh, the spatial organization of the... So maybe say something about the spatial organization of the olfactory cortex, because generally when people think about cortical organization, they think about, about columns. Uh, columns and uh, very strict localization of function and all of that sort of thing. And in the olfactory cortex, it all seems to be um, turned a little bit on its head spatially. So what's the difference between the olfactory cortex organization and the rest of the cortex's organization that makes it hard for us to just look at it and know what's going on? Uh, well, I guess maybe the most immediately obvious, obvious thing would be those three-layered cortex or paleocortex as opposed to neocortex. Um, and in the end, I don't know whether that's really sort of a relevant feature for you know, differences in organization. Um, off the top of my head, I would say that maybe a lot of this lies in the organization of inputs to the cortex. So these genetic tracing experiments show that, you know, single glomerulus, single receptor input spreads out over very, very broad regions. Um, and if other glomerular inputs do the same thing, then you've got really a set of distributed inputs, whereas maybe in other systems, at least in... Um, Sort of primary cortical sensory areas, you've got a more spatially or you know topographically mapped inputs to the system. Um, so that could be one explanation why. But yeah, I mean this is sort of the universal finding, maybe best explored with uh, immediate early gene expression is that you know there's this really distributed pattern of sort of interspersed activity in in subsets of cells. So and the axons aren't actually. Coursing uh, normal to the surface of the cortex, which is what in the neocortex makes these nice, precise little uh, uh, spatially segregated regions. The axons are going perpendicular to that, and I didn't more like the way they do in the cerebellum or in the hippocampus. Right, right. So, be, so besides, I guess, being sort of dispersed, they come along sort of parallel to the cortex and then peel off to the side as they go by. Um, so, so which one is a, whether this is a primary determinant of, you know, the dispersed organization or whether this is just sort of a, you know, coincidence of how the circuit has to be wired in the first place, um, I guess would require knowing what are, is there a molecular determinant, for instance, that sort of governs how the olfactory axons project to cortex. But also the distribution of inhibitory cells, right? I mean, in the in the hippocampus, you have this 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 network and all these Schaefer collaterals, but you also have a very interesting um, 
collection of inhibitory cells, right? And it's very intriguing what they do in in the natural organ uh, in, in 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 the natural environment. Going back to a holistic approach. Also, I wanted to extend the, the question to ask you: What do we know beyond the piriform cortex about other processing? I would say not all that much. And part of the problem is that I think it's still kind of unclear what olfactory cortex really is doing. So what other brain regions do with this information kind of depends on what the output from the cortex um, looks like. But yeah, I mean, it definitely projects, um, like we were talking about early directory, direct to hippocampus and memory areas, directly to uh, amygdala. Um, is it right to say that piriform cortex is more... It's more so. It's more like an association cortex, like the pulmonary or the feature extractors that line up more with the primary cortical areas, and then piriform sort of links everything and synthesizes it and sends it back out and has recurrent connections. Like you're outsourcing your columns to the bulb instead of having your um, cortical columns in the cortex. You have your columns as the glomeruli. Yeah, that's the, and then you that's do the association sort of lines the, up the channels. And the yeah, and I think this is one thing that's really striking about olfactory system is you know from the outside world to you know the cortex, which is presumably performing the sort of final recognition stage. You know, you've really got two or three synapses that are um, doing all the heavy lifting. So maybe that sort of these maybe columnar organization is you know collapsed into the olfactory bulb or. The fact that the sensory space is so complex, maybe this sort of breakdown into, you know, columnar feature detectors takes place, you know, right at the front end. Um, but yeah, it's certainly been argued that um, piriform cortex has, you know, anatomical features that sort of correlate with association cortex. And I think that's at least my impression of the general thinking is that it's sort of this recurrent associative network that does some kind of pattern recognition on a specific set of, of inputs. Do you have any thoughts about the olfactory basal ganglia, the olfactory tubercle? Uh, I have to confess, I, uh, I'm not that knowledgeable about olfactory tu tubercle, um, but I know it does have sort of pretty um, direct and dense connections, I believe, with basal ganglia, and it's been implicated lately, I think, in sort of cocaine um, seeking behavior. So, I mean, there are definitely some interesting things going on there. And I know another common feature of olfactory system is that these sort of, sort of primal, you know, responses and maybe reward or, you know, innately um, aversive or attractive situations, you know, certainly seems to play a strong role in that. So maybe this is one way of feeding that kind of information into, you know, a decision, motor decision circuit, for example. Uh, this is, you know, that's all pretty speculative. Is RAT the right model to look at some of these questions? I mean, it seems like it would be best to take a really simplified version of the circuit with a, an animal that maybe is less olfactory in its approach to the world. Just to have fewer dimensions. Yeah, just fewer. Like, for example, you said that we had, uh, or we have 35 odorant. No, I don't know what you said, but yeah, about, <laughs> we, have, we have a much smaller range of input. Yeah. In and humans, it totals up to about 350, I think, is the current count. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Drosophila has really come about as an incredibly powerful model, you know, because of the genetics and also because there's a reduced number of, of sensory receptors and, you know, glomeruli to go with those. 
so in one sense, you know, they've really been able to make incredible progress in sort of understanding the organization, what is responding to what chemical. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know if that makes it the perfect model because the fact that you have, you know, such a reduced number of receptors, at least compared to the rodent system, um, it could place different constraints on, you know, how the system deals with information. So a lot of the data looking at sort of timing-based mechanisms has also come out of um, insect systems. So, I mean, one possibility is that they place more emphasis on timing-based mechanisms because there's fewer channels to work with, so they need to, you know, increase their encoding space in some way. Um, so again, this is still pretty speculative. I'm not trying to complain. I'm not trying to claim that there's no sort of timing-based mechanisms happening in mammalian olfactory system. But yeah, I mean, the fact that these systems are that much more simplified might mean that they operate somehow differently from, you know, the rodent system right, that I'm looking at, for problem, instance. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Thank you.